about good morning. I was going to record this yesterday, but well, I read this passage to the wife while I was doing research. Then we went for a walk. And boy, did we go for a long walk, so I was just too tired by the time I got home. Gosh. It's unbelievable. Sometimes I have to remember my limitations uh, with this autoimmune disease. And I think it'll be perfect when we uh, read this passage from Finnegan's Wake. So I'm going to let this podcast act. I'm going to try to do this live on that. YouTube as well, but just as as, uh, an intro to Finnegan's Wake, um, I'm going to read, it relates to my last podcast, uh, Irish Independence, um, Impermanence, uh, Trauma, but mostly what I hope to show is uh, early examples of synchronicity in Joyce's work. Um, He uses words infusionism and um, Camp Nancy both of which can mean something very similar along this line. In fact, it even relates to the metam psychosis, metempycosis. So not only was I correct about that, that uh, metempsychosis needed to have its its opposite in Ulysses. Um, we see this idea of uh, the transmigration of souls, or the growth of souls, or the understanding of what the soul is, or the context, uh, the nature of self, I think I said this before, but um, how incredibly influential the Upanishads, Buddhism, Vedanta, uh, the Vedic uh, philosophy was. Yet, I was reading a book on the influences of Joyce, and uh, Buddhism was an afterthought, and the Upanishads were barely even mentioned. When uh, arguably sprinkled throughout But on that note, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the section um, from Finnegan's Wake. Uh, I believe uh, the newest text version from 2010 or newer. Then we're going to read what's in um, the Skeleton's Key to Finnegan's Wake. Uh, You know, I I adore Joseph Campbell, but I think what you're going to see is... um, Well, it's it's what... um, Young predicted, and I think uh, what we can see looking forward with uh, Finnegan's Wake. Young said that he wanted to write a book that people could study for decades to come. Really not that different than Zarathustra, and I think that's what he was referring to, because Zarathustra is a book that you could just keep studying. Uh, Young's Liber Novus, I feel, is very similar. The reason why I'm doing this... Uh, um, book review is because someone said that he felt uh, Liber Novus wasn't worth reading because it was just the ramblings of a schizophrenic. Well, i got news for you. If you think that's the ramblings 
that you're going to attribute to schizophrenesis, <laughs> which is from Finnegan's Wake. He says schizophrenesis. Uh, what that means is, uh, is it's like uh, it really is how we come to things, right? Phrenesis, I've talked about, uh, is a Greek word for um, acquired knowledge. In Sanskrit, the equivalent would be anumana. The reason why I chuckle, it's what John Verveke calls sati as a translation for phrenesis, but it, it most definitely is not. Um, I mean, if anything, I've made the joke that it, it could be sampajanya, but it's not. It's, it's anumana. Anumano is phrenesis. It's like induction or um, knowledge from the ether, right? Um, Finnegan's Wake, if anything, is <laughs> closest to what we would call a schizoaffective uh, writing. Um, but I think this passage, which I just, I picked out of the blue, which is funny that I forgot to even mention. So I'm on my uh, second time through uh, studying Finnegan's Wake, not just reading, but studying. Um, I've gone through and I've uh, uh, read the, the skeleton key again. And then I've gone through and listened to Finnegan's Wake again. Um, wait a minute, that was backwards. Well, you can really tell I'm dyslexic, but... Uh, listened to Skeleton's Key, and now I'm listening to Finnegan's Wake again. Uh, but what I did once is I just uh, read the opener to the wife, just, you know, to give her an idea of what Finnegan's Wake is. Not, people, not many people even are familiar with it. But... Of course, it's just loony that the opener sounds pretty loony, and there's sections that are absolutely beyond the pale, obviously. But this section I'm going to read, oh, I mean, it, to me, it couldn't be any clearer. But when we read what's in the skeleton key and compare it to what's on the page and the times that it was written and, and who Joyce was it becomes uh, very clear that uh, there were some things that were missed, either because of politics or because of this misunderstanding about um, how influential the Upanishads were on Nietzsche, on uh, Jung, on Joyce. And I think the final nail in the coffin to my uh, theory that um, Finnegan's Wake could be the third in a series, but more than a third, but I'm just talking about the third in Nice series, Nietzsche, uh, Jung, and uh, Joyce, uh, the three of them writing a source for meaning, a source for for value, uh, Schatzen in, in German. I'll have to look to see if there's a, a word in, in uh, Guelga, in, in Gaelic, that, uh, that means something similar. Right, um, I mean, it's very similar to Sanskrit shraddha, which we translate to English as faith, but it's really commitment, confidence, and devotion. Right, so it is something you hold as precious. Right, which is what vajra means. Right, you're precious. But on that, um, we're going to do a a reading from Finnegan's Wake. Um, we're going to read the section from the Skeleton's Key. Uh, and then I'm actually going to open up uh, what it seems to have been missed. 
within Finnegan, Finnegan's Wake. So arguably, uh, we may be able to give you um, a greater uh, insight and understanding to Finnegan's Wake than uh, the vast, vast majority of people who may even go around saying that they're a fan of Finnegan's Wake. Um, I mean, the example is... Um, I, I know someone who supposedly is, is an absolute fanatic. Okay, and that's where uh, fanatic comes from. Fan, fanatic. Uh, he's an absolute zealot when it comes to... Uh, I wouldn't say Joyce, which is weird. I mean, I love everything Joyce has written. He's mainly about Finnegan's Wake, which is weird. But I thought he'd be chuffed when I mentioned the uh, the work that were... were uh, it's just this idea that um, opening up Joyce's work to a broader audience, um, maybe even opening up to further scholarship, <clears throat> I never thought it'd be possible. But if you think about, um, I mean, Finnegan's Wake, published in 39, right during the war, right? So it kind of got forgotten and lost. If you compare it to... Um, the other two books that I mentioned, uh, Nietzsche, Zarathustra, also Sprach, Zarathustra, by Nietzsche. And Liber Novus, the Red Book, by Carl Jung. It really does follow what Jung says. It takes 20 years for knowledge to trickle down to the mainstream. Right? If you look at uh, also Sprach, Zarathustra, Published, say, we'll say 1890. I mean, we're just making it easier on numbers. He certainly didn't get popular for, you know, 50 years after. Liber Novus, he didn't publish it. Published in 09. Like I said, uh, I've mentioned this before. Remember I mentioned the politician who said he learned Norwegian to be able to read a book which right away made me think of uh, James Joyce, who learned to uh, speak uh, uh, Heinrich, Henrik, Henrik or Heinrich, Henrik, Henrik Ibsen, learned to uh, speak his language so he could read his books and then converse with them. And so a reason why you'd learn this language, because you love a particular book. Well, here's where I wonder, right, um, when I mention uh, my love for a particular book, I wonder sometimes um, if people really do love these books. But anyway, it's the 50 years. Um, I mean, I think it's just uh, maybe us is what I was trying to get at. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a pattern to the 20 years when it comes to these books, it seems even longer, is what I was trying to get at. It seems about 50 years before these things tend to gain traction. Wonder. But then on my walk yesterday, I was thinking that, I mean, I spent decades on Zarathustra, and then I've spent a couple years with uh, Liber Novus, and then it's only been the last uh, six months or a year with uh, Finnegan's Wake and James Joyce, right? I mean, it only took me a couple months um, to really become familiar with Ulysses. 
So I half wonder if it's not so much time as it is that commitment we talked about, that devotion, that confidence. Because what I was going to get to is I went and did my research and, and the scholarship. Now, there's some recent scholarship on Nietzsche. There was an autobiography recently that I do not recommend. It is not worth reading. Uh, Sue Prio, I think her name is. And she, she just, no, it's not worth it. Uh, it. I'd love there to be new material on Nietzsche, but no, she failed in so many fronts that I do not recommend you wasting your time on that one. Um, there's been some translations of Zarathustra, but... Honestly, one of the recent ones almost got there in a few sections of the book, but for the most part, it seems that uh, also Spag Zarathustra is just being retranslated from 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 the English, right? Honestly, if you look back and see Thomas Commons, it seems everyone's just uh, translated Thomas Commons into their own language, which is why I like R.J. Hollingdale's translations because they seem much more. Um, natural. Seems somebody who has a strong grasp of the German and the English, both, right? Because I know this from French. Um, yeah, you can translate, uh, you know, you're just speaking a language. This is why I chuckle, because someone asked, you, oh, you speak German, I chuckle. Big difference between speaking a language and translating, right? I mean, arguably, speaking doesn't really tell you much. Which is why I chuckle, because um, that's how I, I became proficient uh, in some of these languages, is beginning by translating. And uh, weirdly enough, by translating, you actually become more proficient in the use and understanding of the language. I think that's possibly why my English, my vocabulary, and my, uh, well, just my... Uh, thesaurus, I guess. I don't know what you call that. Yeah, it's just vocabulary. For me, it was trying to express myself having come from a different end. Being self-taught, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I've told this story before that my journey of being a... Uh, an automath and a self-taught person is, is a weird one. I, I got into college uh, under a you know, program, a special program. Uh, I did get accepted to universities, but again, because I was so just recently diagnosed with my learning disability, I'd only been given uh, the basics. I probably would have done better at university because at university they probably would have given me the, um, the equipment I needed and, and that I was promised for college, I was promised a laptop, and I was promised a voice to uh, to text, and I never got anything I was promised. I was given a tape recorder without the battery pack and without a, um, a plug, uh, so I had to go buy the tapes. Uh, I couldn't get the battery pack because it's such an obscure um, recorder, um, and I couldn't use it because classrooms didn't have a plug anywhere near where I could you know, pick up what the teacher was saying, right, so it ended up being an absolute waste, so I didn't get any of the help I needed, <sighs> but that said, I wonder, but when I went to college, um, it was a, 
both a college and a university, right? So uh, the shared cafeteria. And I remember one, one day there was some students sitting around in the cafeteria and they were talking about the professors and they were all trying to be all smart. I never really understood how all this works, really, but now I do, right? They were trying to impress each other of how uh, smart they were. And what's funny is I didn't realize is that I was actually over sitting by myself, and I'd actually been reading about um, a pressure point for healing, pressure points for healing called Jijou, Jijou points, um, the samurai. Uh, and I was reading about Jijou point 60 and uh, I think 13 at, at the time, and I got up, and as I was going by, they were talking, and they were talking about how somebody had misused the word epitome, and they had said epitome. And I laughed because I, I realized, I bet you very few of them even knew what ep epitome was, let alone the fact that they were the epitome of ignorance. They laughed because the teacher actually made fun of the student. And they all chuckled themselves. Now that stuck for me, with me for years until I realized the teacher was probably, um, what do you call it, uh, felt jealous or challenged by this fact because to be an automath in this day and age, never mind 20 or 30 years ago, is quite a feat. Right? When, uh, when teachers want to be uh, the gatekeepers to knowledge, right? When... Uh, when, honestly, knowledge is so heavily paywalled, it's no surprise that if someone shows that they're self-taught, they mispronounce a word or a name, it's unbelievable how quick people are to, uh, you know, correct, but with... with uh, malicious intent, I guess you'd say, right? They want to make fun of them, they want to make feel stupid. In a sense, uh, shutting them up because I think it, it makes them, uh, it reminds them of, uh, of that they're not that good, right? If they were that good of a student, then they would understand that uh, when you read epitome that's what you get you don't get epitome I mean I've learned because of Greek and Latin English and French and German and Italian and then Sanskrit and Pali I mean there's different ways to pronounce different words but that's really been my uh, claim to fame uh, people have always been surprised that I'm able to pronounce things in, in all sorts of different languages but that's just the dyslexia you remember you memorize this stuff. So when a professor doesn't understand something as simple as if they understand the word epitome and they can use it correctly, even if they're mispronouncing it, I mean, the, the real failure is this professor probably didn't realize that while the majority of his classroom were laughing with him, they probably didn't understand what they were laughing about and where she at. With a professor making fun of a student for mispronouncing the word epitome, as I said, that's the epitome of ignorance because I almost guarantee 
that he would have been much better, and he would have probably taught far more students if he had reminded them that, well, this is pretty obviously someone who has taught themselves, and to explain that uh, mispronouncing something can be because you learned it yourself, uh, you may speak another language, you may be neurodivergional, which is the current uh, in thing. But as I said, if the teacher had taught these students that why we pronounce epitome, again, English language is just the weirdest language there is, it would have been quite a, a learning lesson for these students, I think. They would have been able to know what epitome means, would have been able to use it in a sentence, uh, and then they would have understood how weird English is. And maybe they would have understood that it's better to be more curious than judgmental. Right? Because when you learn another language, worse, when you learn multiple, you, you tend to second-guess being a dyslexic. I've talked about my lying eyes. Well, when you learn multiple languages, you tend to have what I call your lying ears. Because I make a joke with the wife all the time, like um, I kind of play on a James Joyce Cockney sign of, uh, you know, your your heart, your 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 pumper, your your I can't think of anything. Um, just how they play with words, right? Go up the up the street, up the peat, you know that sort of. Um, because when you learn a, uh, another language, you have more curiosity than judgment as to what words are. I've used this example before, and I think it makes my point about proficiency in the language first. I've talked about our bank, uh, who have used uh, virtual signaling rather than actually helping people. They, they started hiring people that spoke more than one language, right? So there was a gentleman who spoke uh, English and uh, French and uh, some Balkan language, which was pretty cool. Uh, his French was awful, but uh, he was very friendly. There was another young lady who spoke uh, English and Mandarin. That was a bit of a problem because her English was terrible. Um, that My wife couldn't understand her. I had a very hard time understanding her. Um, and then when I spoke Mandarin to her, um, she didn't understand me. And the wife couldn't understand that because it's per it was perfect Mandarin. Because after the third time, she was like, oh, it's because her English is so bad. She's struggling to try to understand the words we're giving her, assuming they're English, even when they were Mandarin. right? Because I've run into that myself. If I'm struggling with uh, someone with a particularly uh, difficult French accent, um... I can't just hear something in English while I'm trying to uh, pick it up. Right. It doesn't happen as often as the opposite. It's much more common that um, if, uh, if I'm trying to translate uh, from, from French into English in real time, that if, uh, if I'm spoken to in English, it might break my concentration for the translation. It's not very often that it goes the opposite way. Right? Because again, that makes the point that once you become proficient, you can't be broken of that. Because what I've noticed over the last couple of years, practicing my uh, real-time translation of English to French, right? I mentioned before I had an English teacher who said she, she learned French. She married a French guy. That's probably how she really did learn it. But she said she learned her French by uh, reading a dictionary. And I thought, no, that can't be. But then, lo and behold, I've learned uh, 
a huge chunk of Sino-Japanese and Sanskrit from doing the same things, just reading reading it from the book. Pali would be better, I guess. Pali and, and the Oracle Bone scripts uh, I've learned almost exclusively from books. But I thought that made the point because um, initially I had a very hard time with the real-time translation of English to French especially here in Canada when they're going back and forth between English and French, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, right? So while I'm translating what they had just said in French into English, they might be actually speaking in English or vice versa. <clears throat> and what I found is when I first started doing this, I had a super hard time with this. I'd actually have to stop stop the, uh, the audio so that I could translate and then keep going. But fast forward to today, I can go back and forth between the languages. I can do real-time translation. I can even give context in the middle of it. Um, because, again, it seems that politicians are doing what I'd recommend. It's just make your language as simple as possible so that you can uh, put across the same message in, in, in whatever language you're trying to put across. Yet not because your audience is not smart. Uh, we aim for a grade 8 level of language because most people are just passively consuming content. So you don't want to make it too difficult for them to understand what you're saying. Um, plus, it makes it easier for a lot of these politicians that, uh, as I said, they may be confident in one language, um, but their uh, their ability in the other language is is sorely lacking, right? Uh, so that's uh, that's what I wanted to uh, to share because I think it applies to uh, Finnegan's Wake. I think that's why so many people are um, challenged and maybe even put off, like actually physically uh, bothered by the language of Finnegan's Wake. But being dyslexic, um, everything is is discourteous to me. Language, uh, computers, um, text, sounds, sights, right? Being English and French from an early age, I've said this before, that... They said they uh, they did me a disservice putting me in uh, early French immersion with my dyslexia. I think they're wrong. I think this was them uh, thinking that dyslexia is a permanent disability instead of just a different way of learning. I think I've proven that uh, in the matter of about five years. Uh, I've gone from just being educated in, in economics and banking, maybe a little bit of poetry here and there and some Nietzsche, uh, to arguably having given myself a classical education, uh, philology of sorts, uh, modern philology, in a matter of five years. Now, I've been taking courses ever since school, um, but it wasn't until a, a number of years ago that this really started to take uh, take off, uh, the open courses online. And see, that's where I excel. Right? I don't need the classroom. If I get the syllabus and then the class notes and the uh, agenda and all that sort of stuff, that's all I need. I mean, in fact, that's more than what I need. What I found in class is the crosstalk and all these other people just kind of ruined it. Uh, like that uh, Nawari translation course I was just in. Uh, it was two months uh, learning how to translate the script used uh, to document Sanskrit and Pali. But it ended up that... Um, it was just a bunch of people who wanted to show off. Rather, not a bunch of people, but there was enough people in there that just wanted to show off that um, it just ruined the course. 
Because when the professor on the last day he said, hey, you have any questions? Nobody said anything. But during the, the, uh, during the, uh, the two months that we were doing the course, these guys, guys, I say guys, I mean mostly men, believe it or not, would, uh, not exclusively, but mostly would, would uh, and it means nothing, I'm just saying, um, they would interrupt just by saying, well, that looks like this or that, because they recognized a, uh, a character. But imagine if I, as an English speaker, um, was taking a course on uh, Friesen, or right, a language that's like uh, proto-English. But everyone else in the course is German-speaking, so, I mean, this is it's a challenge to them to be learning, because, uh, you know, they don't speak the language, and they don't write the language. Imagine if I, as an English speaker, were to chime in every, you know, five minutes and go, hey, well, isn't that that? Instead of stopping and going, well, wait a minute, this is why we're in a course, to learn about this Nawari script, because this Nawari script isn't, you know, Dungari that I'm familiar with, or, you know, whatever it might be. Maybe I should just take a step back and understand that my constant interruptions are only going to... Uh, to impinge on the class learning. And lo and behold, I think that's what ended up happening because um, nobody even said anything at the end of the class. Nobody said anything about anything. They didn't even say thank you, which is what most of these classes are like because usually um, they become so insightful, so enlightening that the students can't help but to be thankful. right? Because again, remember, we're not just learning to translate regular language. Uh, a lot of this is to translate ancient um, texts, right? Or some stuff for the first time. Right, I mentioned I came across that Zen Sutra uh, about uh, healing Zen sickness. And it was lost in Sanskrit and uh, only extant in Chinese. So I wanted to read it. So I translate it, right? So for me, I think it's the commitment, the devotion, and the confidence that's missing, right? The meaning and the message, right? If these students knew they were in the class to, right, understand, to learn, but as a group, right, the minimize of this ego, <sighs> As I ramble on for 30 minutes uh, of something that's just an intro to uh, the actual podcast, uh, talk about ego, am I right? But on that note, uh, I will bid you uh, adieu. And as I said, uh, we're going to record an excerpt from Finnegan's Wake, analyze it, analyze uh, the excerpt from The Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake by Joseph Campbell, uh, and then we're going to actually look at it, because... Uh, um, it's quite interesting. There are sections of the book that are, you know, it clears mud, but this section is not. As I said, uh, in, in a roundabout way, I chose this section just by accident. I just jumped to a place in the book just to show the wife that not everything was as tough as some of the sections that I had read. And lo and behold, uh, this section talks about uh, Irish nationalism, uh, impermanence of being, and and what a blessing it is that we have uh, this time on earth, uh, particularly because we don't know how much time 
we truly do have. Right? The sands of the hourglass are hidden from our eyes. We do know that they've begun. We just don't know how much remains. All right, well, I'm going to read a little bit before the section that I'm going to highlight and a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit after. So this is from Finnegan's Wake. This is page, the very bottom of page 117. <clears throat> I'll be reading the majority of page 18 uh, and um, the majority of page 119, but really the, the uh, section is, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to read the section that really uh, applies to us. So it's uh, the bottom of page 118 and the top of page 119. You can read the section uh, before and after. Uh, the one before it is about love, uh, and the one after it is about, um, I guess it would be meaning, culture, identity, where we come from. So we'll just stick to the middle section. So, it opens. Now, Katmansi and Infusionism may both fit as tight as two trivets, but while we are in our we-free state, holding to that pre-statute in our charter, may have our irremovable doubts as to the whole sense of the lot, the interpretation of any phrase in the whole, the meaning of every word of a phrase so far deciphered out of it, however unfettered our Irish daily independence. We must vaunt no idle dubiosity as to its genuine authorship and hullabaloo authoritativeness, and let us Bring thee cease to beakerings on that clink, Olman Butler. On the face of it, to vault back to our desultory horses. And for your roughshod mind, baffle-lost bull, the affair is a thing once for all done, and there you are, somewhere, and finished in a certain time, be it a day or a year, or even supposing it should eventually turn out to be a serial number of goodness gracious alone knows how many days or years. Anyhow, somehow and somewhere, before the book flood, or after her ebb, somebody mentioned by name in his telephone directory, Cocolanus, or Galotaurus, wrote it, wrote it all, wrote it all down, and there you are, full stop. Oh, Undoubtedly, yes, and very potably so, but one who deeper thinks will always bear in the buck-buckus of his mind that this downright, there you are, and there it is, is only all in his eye. Why? Now that was the, the uh, Finnegan's Wake, page uh, 118, to 119 and if you read it in um, the skin uh, the skeleton wake the section says though we may doubt the sense of the whole the interpretation of any phrase 118 or of any word we must vaunt no idle dubiousness as to its authenticity somehow and somewhere somebody wrote it all down and there you are yes but one who thinks more deeply will bear in mind 
that this downright there you are is a statement conditioned by all the contingencies of phenomenology. My apologies. <sighs> yes, but one who thinks more deeply will bear in mind that this downright there you are is a statement conditioned by all the contingencies of phenomenality. So the phenomenality of uh, phenomenology of self. Right? What is self? Self is a phenomenon. What is this phenomenon? Right? It's this corpus of preferences. And it goes on, as is talking about the end uh, on 119, because every person, place, and thing, any way connected with it was moving and changing every part of the time. It is not a mere mass of blots. It only looks that way. We should realize how lucky we are to possess at this late hour and considering how much of it we carelessly lost, even a scrap of it, cling to it as with drowning hands and hope that things will begin to clear up a bit one way or another within the next quarter of an hour. Right, that's, that's this section. Again, so I'll read uh, from Finnegan's Wake again. Now, Captain Mancy and Infusionism may both fit as tight as two trivets, but while we are in our wee free state, holding to that pre-statute in our charter, may have our irremovable doubts as to the whole sense of the lot, the interpretation of any phrase in the whole, the meaning of every word of a phrase so far deciphered out of it, however unfettered our Irish daily independence. We must vaunt no idle dubiosity as to its genuine authorship and hullabaloo authoritativeness. And let us bring thee cease to the beakerings on that clink, Olman Butter. On the face of it, devote back to our desultory horses, and for your roughshod mind, baffled, lost bull, the affair is a thing once for all done. And there you are, somewhere, and finished in a certain time, be it a day or a year, or even supposing it should eventually turn out to be a serial number of goodness gracious alone knows how many days or years. Anyhow, somehow and somewhere, before the book flood or after her ebb, somebody mentioned by name in his telephone directory, Cocolanius or Galatoris, wrote it, wrote it all, wrote it all down, and there you are. Full stop. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, yes, and very potably so, but one who deeper thinks will always bear in the backbacus of his mind that this downright, there you are, and there it is, is only all in his eye. Why? So as I've said, when you go through this, I mean, it opens with Kemp Nancy. Spelled with a K, but if you looked up Capnomancy, signifies a method of divination using smoke. Smoke being as impermanent. Uh, what's interesting is later he talks about the Bakbakas, of his mind, right? Um, Bucan is uh, is smoke in French, so right. But back, Bacchus, the back, B A C C, 
Bacchus, also an allusion to um, uh, the god of wine, right? Uh, but infusionism, right? So it opens with uh, Captain Imancy, right? So this with a K, with the I in it, Captain Imancy, right? So this I is, is a smoke, is as smoke, as I've said before, Vasubandhu said, the self is upakara in Sanskrit, that which is close at hand. Infusionism goes one step further, and it's the doctrine that the soul has existed in a previous state and was infused or poured into the body at conception or birth. So the idea of the, the permanence of the soul and the impermanence of the vessel, right? He talks about being tight as two trivets, right? Because he had just mentioned about uh, being old cup of tea, like an old cup of tea. But then he mentions, oh, are we free state, right? This is down south in Ireland. He's referring to the Trebles uh, and the Constitution. And there was uh, one uh, group at this particular time who felt it was wrong to accept um, uh, partition of Ireland, they wanted a, a free state, a unified free state. So it says, uh, well, we, in our we free state, again, we, Irish, small, free state, which is, right, free state was the south, what's now considered uh, the Republic of Ireland. He says, holding to that pre-statute in our charter. And this is what's interesting. It's pronounced as pre-statute in uh, the Audible book. I don't know if that's correct. If you look up the word pre-statute, um, it doesn't exist, but what we do have is prestation, prestation, which is a rent or tax uh, due in kind or in service. So, absolutely is what he was referencing to, because it goes back to prestation or prestatio in Latin, which is a required payment, right? So, it's a reference to both to a required payment. Um, for reparations, as a sense, but also uh, that's what Ireland was about. Uh, it was all about uh, rent, and so it definitely fits. But of course, it also referencing holding to that pre-statute in our charter. This idea, right? We may have our irremovable doubts as to the whole sense of the lot. So this might be a reference to this division I was talking about or um, that it was a failure to begin with or it could be just speaking to what I've mentioned before, this idea that like the Canadian uh, indigenous culture, uh, the Irish culture had almost completely and arguably successfully uh, been erased. So we were giving birth to a, a culture that had almost disappeared. Yes, it still survived in different areas of Ireland, but that would be like saying, well, you know, um, the culture in this corner of the country has survived uh, the test of time. Um, so why don't we apply it to all areas of the country? I talked about this, that I think it was a mistake of the Balkan countries, uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Serbia. These countries seem to have... Um, blended their cultures together, watering it down in the process as an attempt at unity. But what it did is it just um, removed the gravitas behind 
the meaning, the culture, the identity, the importance of, of where you come from and, and what, what you mean in what you say. Right? So this idea, he goes on and says, the interpretation of any phrase in the whole, as I said, language is based in culture, right? meaning and value. He says, the meaning of every word of a phrase so far deciphered out of it. Again, we, we need to understand the meanings to understand our whole, I mean, it's so difficult when we're trapped inside of our, our minds to be able to express our experience, let alone something so ephemeral as this. So it goes on and says, um, however, unfettered our Irish daily independence, right? So however pure their wish for this independence, we must vaunt no idle dubiosity as to its genuine authorship and hullabaloo authoritativeness. Right? So this idea, there's um, some argument back and forth. It's interesting too because uh, we were just out yesterday for that long walk, but I actually was able to pick up uh, a book on De Valera uh, at, at a thrift store. So talk about a little synchronicity there. And let us bring the cease to beakerings on that clink. Olman Butler. And now this one, it bring thee cease. Bring thee cease. All right. Bring thee to, uh, to bear, but bring like calm ye down. Right. But also this idea of the self. Right. Emotional regulation. I mean, if you remember, um, we talked about emotional regulation as it relates to trauma. But at this time, remember the Irish were finally having a voice. And so just imagine the amount of, of um, pent-up uh, rage from, from, uh, from intergenerational, uh, well, from, from, uh, from centuries of uh, unfair um, interactions. We'll just say that. And I go on, it says, on the face of it, to vote back to our desultory horses. And for your roughshod mind, your baffle lost bull, the affair is a thing once for all and done, and there you are, somewhere and finished in a certain time. So that goes on. But I just want to highlight the opening here. Right? So on the face of it, to vote back to her desultory horses. And that's perfect. Let me, uh, oh, I guess I didn't have that tab open. Desultory. Moving or jumping from one thing to another, disconnected, occurring randomly or sporadically, chance, right? So flitting about, not that different from the roughshod mind, right? So it does, he's, he's saying desultory horses, but he's referencing our minds. Then he says roughshod minds, right? So using horses uh, as an allegory for our mind and then using, um, uh, what, do, what do they call... Uh, equipment for for horses, I forget, but he uses that to reference our desultory minds, baffle lost bull, right? So the affair, I love this too, listen, listen. So the affair is our life, our existence, our time on, uh, a time in, in, in this affair. So the affair is a thing once for all done, 
And there you are, finished in a certain time. Right? To every man upon this earth, death comes soon or late. But how may man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? I memorized that decades ago, long before it was put into any movies, because it resonated for me. Right? And as he said, I go on, be it a day or a year, or even supposing it should eventually turn out to be a serial number of goodness gracious alone knows how many days or years. Right? Again, if you embrace the eternal return, amor fati, which is love your fate, then those days aren't a certain time. It, it can turn out to be many days and years. Goodness gracious alone knows how many. And I go on, it says, anyhow, somehow, and somewhere, before the book flood, or after her ebb. So the book flood is experience. Think about in a younger, when you're younger, and you know, experience is never ending then. Right? Uh, every day is full of memories and experience. And then after her ebb, you get to, say, my age, and, you know, your entire week's worth of experience was that one trip to the thrift store. <laughs> I can't, but I continue. Somebody mentioned by name in his telephone directory. Again, this is somebody's marking this stuff down in his book. Cocolenius, or Galotaurus, wrote it, wrote it all, wrote it all down, and I think this is a very obscure reference. Uh, Galatorus uh, actually sounds like a relative to the Tyrannosaurus rex, um, Allosaurus, but I can't be sure. Those two words are a little obscure and not much comes up on the internet. Wrote it, wrote it all, wrote it all down, and there you are, full stop. Oh, undoubtedly, yes. Here's a reference back to his, uh, say yes, the eternal return or the ending of Ulysses. Say yes, say yes to life, say and very potably so, right? So potably. So it's, it's that, that uh, drink that quenches our thirst, right? But one who deeper thinks will always bear in the bakbakas of his mind that this downright, there you are, and there it is, is only all in his eye. Why? Right? So that, to me, was the last to prove we have uh, synchronicity of Jung, right? infusionism and his pre-statute. Right? Uh, shows the Irish nationalism. Not subtle, as they were saying before. You have to remember the trauma from the 20s uh, and moved its way forward by 50 years. Right, so we're now at a hundred-year anniversary of uh, of the Civil War in the twenties, but at this particular time, they were at a hundred-year anniversary of the original Irish Civil War. Right? So yeah, that was all I wanted to mention. Is wow, it's not so opaque in the end, is it? <laughs>